1872, a, a sailing boat left uh, Newcastle. It was laden with coal and it was due for uh, Bangkok. Uh, and um, it, 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 was, it was going on this, on this great voyage across the oceans to that. Um, and uh, as, as she left Newcastle, uh, uh, she came down uh, the coast and then hit the English Channel. And you'd have thought that would have been the least of their worries. But no, no, uh, English Channel, a mighty storm rose up over this ship. Um, this is not the exact one, but this is a, a Barcade ship. And apparently um, it's a reference to the arrangements and configuration of sails. I'm not a sailor, so I can't tell you why it's this type. But apparently 1872, a boat much like this one uh, hit was hit by a storm in the English Channel. And this storm almost finished her, almost took her out completely. A lot of damage uh, uh, was done. And uh, the ship um, was called the Palestine. And on board, there was a young Polish soldier, um, sailor, and uh, he wrote of his experience. Now, he, he wrote it into a, a fictional story, but the story contains this autobiographical moment. Um, and uh, so the, it, it's contained within the pages of a, a short story called Youth by Joseph Conrad. Um, and, it's, and it says this, so you're in the English Channel. You know when you catch a ferry across for a booze cruise or whatever Christians go across to the Channel for? Um, uh, and then the storm whips up and you're not in like this steel uh, uh, ferry, but you're in something a little bit more precarious. The sea was white like a sheet of foam, like a cauldron of boiling milk. There was not a break in the clouds, no, not the size of a man's hand, not for as much as ten seconds. There was for us no sky, there was for us no stars, no sun, no universe, nothing but angry clouds and an infuriated sea. We pumped watch after watch, for dear life, you know, so getting the water off the, uh, the boat. We pumped watch after watch for dear life. And it seemed to last for months, for years, for all eternity. As though we had been dead and gone to a hell for sailors. We forgot the day of the week, the name of the month, what year it was and whether we had ever been ashore. The sails, they blew away. She lay broadside on, under a weathercock. The ocean poured over her, and we did not care. We turned those handles and had the eyes of idiots. And we turned, we turned incessantly, with the water to our waist, to our necks, over our heads, it was all one. We had forgotten how it felt to be dry, and there was somewhere in me the thought, by Jove, this is a juice of an adventure, something you read about, and it is my first voyage as a second mate, and I am only 20. And here I am, lasting it out as well as any of these men and keeping my chaps up to the mark. I was pleased. I would not have given up this experience for worlds. I had moments of exultation. Whenever the old dismantled craft pitched heavily with her counter high in the air, she seemed to me to throw up like an appeal, like a defiance like a cry to the clouds without mercy, the words written on her stern, Judea, London, do or die. O oh, youth, 
the strength of it, the faith of it, the imagination of it. To me, she was not an old rattle-trap carting about the world, a lot of coal for a freight. To me, she was the endeavour, the test, the trial of life. I think of her with pleasure, with affection, with regret, as you would think of someone dead you have loved. I shall never forget her. It's a wild storm. These sailors are in danger of their life. And this kid, this 20-year-old man who has not been exposed to the wrath of the sea much, he is excited by the experience. And uh, Joseph Conrad captures that for the youth, there is a lust for life that the older of us can forget, where we strive perhaps for comfort and for routine and for that nice pair of slippers and a comfy armchair. Those things are not such so appealing for the younger ones. And there is a lust even for danger, the things that we should naturally shy away from the youth are drawn to like moths to a flame. Now the fearlessness of youth is something to behold and something uh, uh, wonderful when it's channeled right. But the counterpoint of this is that youth often have their defects too. They have often a rabid impatience with the older generations. There is a dismissal of other people's opinions and points of view because they are confident in themselves and they know what needs to be done and if just the old fogies would listen, the world would be a lot better. Just as this young man, with his appetite for risks, wouldn't have been allowed to command this, this vessel through these shipping channels. A young person, I'm afraid, is quite rightly restrained elsewhere in life. If you have a Bible, turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. So we continue our series through uh, 1 Peter. We're very nearly at the end. Um, and it says this. 1 Peter, chapter 5, verse 5. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Why? Because, and then he quotes this proverb, God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. So humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. It's a great verse for these times. Cast all your anxiety on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. Peter, if you remember, last week, uh, 
Church leaders are to conscientiously shepherd God's people with that heart of a servant, with that heart of care and attention. And now Peter takes his eyes away from the leaders and looks at the young people, these fearless uh, men and women who would take life by the horns. And this great apostle, this famous disciple, exclaims that even the youth, with all their confidence and physical prowess, they must defer to the church leadership. They are to allow themselves to be guided and trained. Now I'm not to go on a great rant about how all young people need to listen to me. That's not the uh, uh, purpose of today. Do you remember who Peter was? Do you remember his story from the Gospels? I'm not sure there is a greater illustration in all of the Gospels or in all of the Bible of a young man who knew what it was to have a rush of blood to the head and say something idiotic and stupid. I'm not sure there is someone in all of Scripture who does not know that impetuousness of youth. Under Jesus' earthly ministry, he repeatedly said stuff that even us as young people might have shied away from. But Peter comes now as an old man and he says, avoid my mistakes. I have experienced these things very well with no less than the Messiah himself. Perhaps you need to forego my errors. And so if you've ever screwed up in Jesus' service, I want you to hear Peter saying these things and be encouraged. If Peter, the impetuous young man who Jesus essentially looked at and told him he was Satan, if he can recover, if God can trust him, not just with following Jesus, but leading church and churches, then there is hope for every single one of us. You and I, we live in a time where youth, energy and enthusiasm seem to be some of the only values. Very few people embrace age happily. Very few people embrace grey hair delightedly. Very few people embrace wrinkles with joy in their hearts. Very few, uh, after a certain number of birthdays, love to count them uh, uh, on their, uh, beyond their fingers and toes. We complain and resist. And we add photo filters and uh, makeup and hair dye and anything to pretend we're younger. We complain and we resist. We don't want to age. But Peter reminds us otherwise. Wisdom and patience are beautiful things. And they are things that come with age, with experience. They are earned and learned. They are not natural things that we acquire, like learning uh, Spanish or maths. They take years and years and they should be valued and precious 
to us. If you are a veteran of the faith, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, I want you to know in this place we value you. You are important to us. Your input here is uh, vital for this body's health. Just because um, we don't have an old person's ministry doesn't mean to say they are not uh, a core element of our fellowship. We were on a uh, Zoom call on uh, Tuesday in a discipleship group and uh, uh, one of the older members of the congregation uh, just waxed lyrical about God's goodness to them through a divorce, through cancer, uh, through being a single parent and all these difficulties. And I really wanted to interrupt because I had a point to make. And then you just sat back and you were like, this is years of experience. This is tried and tested in the cauldrons of life. My theoretical point could wait a moment while the beauty of a life led in this way could be appreciated. And the rest of us just needed to sit back and listen. If you are young, and um, now that for me is anyone under 30, I think it's a bit of an arbitrary point, um, I encourage you, draw near to saintly old hands. People that know the faith for decades benefit from their expertise. Peter knew this was important. And our church needs to understand this. After addressing the, uh, the youngsters, Peter quotes um, this proverb to illustrate this principle of deference, this idea that those under 30 should listen to the old people. It's actually for everyone. It's not just you young people need to listen to the old people and that's it. Everyone is to be humble. All believers are to recognise that we are not the centre of things. That we are not the arbiters of what right and wrong. How many people come into a church and they become the measure of whether that church is good or terrible. Where they are, oh, I wouldn't do it like that, or they've got this wrong, or they shouldn't be doing that. And we become these gods with a small g in this place. And uh, we imagine that our opinion is right. But Peter says, come on guys, nurture a bit of humility. Listen to God's Holy Spirit. Listen to God and listen to the people around you. You have not been saved to be on your own. You have been saved to fellowship. And it is not up to everyone else to bow the knee to you because of all your wisdom. We come alongside each other and enjoy the insight of the wider fellowship. It's why we have a, a kind of a body of leaders rather than just me telling everyone what to do. However easier that would be. This is why meeting together is so important. That is why we've church struggles under these lockdown conditions because it is unnatural not to meet together. 
You see, meeting together exposes us to competing ideas. It can exposes us to people that have seen God's faithfulness in the situations we are looking ahead of us at. We are exposed to values that might be a bit different. You know, slants on the gospel that we perhaps hadn't appreciated before. Aspects of belief that perhaps we hadn't um, uh, brought close. We're supposed to have our arrogance tempered, our faith educated. We should become more humble because of the experience in this place. And I imagine everyone's going, well, that's not me, Kevin. I've got a lot of people in mind when you talk about arrogant <laughs> believers. But obviously, I am just really good at being uh, humble. Um, Jesus just uses out of every pore of me. And, one, and then Peter steps in. And uh, he suggests this. You have an unhealthy sense of your own importance if you suffer under pressure. If pressure comes and you really kick and struggle and fail, if when pressure comes you lash out, if when pressure comes you get angry, if when pressure comes you get depressed, if the pressure comes and you retreat from society, if pressure comes and you lose sleep, if pressure comes and you make bad decisions, you are breaking under that pressure. And Peter says, yes, and you've got a bad opinion of your own importance where you are the deciding factor, and it's all about you. If we are humble, we give in to God's power and authority and plan and love for us. And this pressure that's exerted on us suddenly becomes an opportunity for us to trust him rather than lose sleep. Trust him rather than fire off an angry word. Um, my favourite Christian story outside the Bible uh, is that of Anne van der Bilge from the Netherlands. Um, you may not have heard of him. Um, his uh, book, however, um, is very famous in uh, Christian circles. Uh, he's a sort of widely known as Brother Andrew, uh, or God Smuggler, um, and he tells us in it of his journey from this nihilistic soldier who didn't believe in anything to this of this incredibly profound, loving, compassionate Christian. Uh, he felt the call on his life at <coughs> one point after being saved to bring the Bible uh, to people that were not allowed it, that people that lived in societies where uh, reading the Bible was forbidden and owning it was certainly uh, not a good thing. Um, and his uh, charity Open Doors is still doing incredible work. I want you to listen to this. Just ahead of me was the Yugoslav border. For the first time in my life, I was about to enter a communist country of my own. Instead of in a group invited and sponsored by the government, and so I stopped. I stopped the little VW on the outskirts of the tiny Austrian village and I took stock. The Yugoslav government in 57 permitted visitors to only bring in articles for their personal use. Anything new or anything in quantity was suspect because of the black market thriving all over the country. Printed material especially was liable to be confiscated at the border. No matter how small the quantity, 
because coming from out of the country, it was regarded as foreign propaganda. Now here I was with the car and the luggage, literally bulging with tracks, Bibles and portions of Bibles. How was I to get them past the border guard? And so for the first of many times, I prayed the prayer of God's smuggler. Lord, in my luggage I have scripture that I want to take to your children across the border. When you're on earth, you may blind eyes see. Now I pray, make seeing eyes blind. Do not let the guards see those things you do not want them to see. And you see how he's cast his anxiety onto God. And so armed with this prayer, I started the motor and drove up to the barrier. The two guards appeared, both startled and pleased to see me. I wondered how much business came their way. From the way they stared at my passport, it might have been the first Dutch one they'd ever seen. There was just a few formalities to attend you, they assured me in German, and I could be on my way. One of the guards began poking around in my camping gear. In the corners and folds of my sleeping bag and tent were boxes of tracks. Lord, may they see in your eyes blind. Do you have anything to declare? Well, I have my money and a wristwatch and a camera. The other guard was looking inside the VW. He asked me to take out a suitcase. I knew that there were tracks scattered throughout my clothing. Of course, sir. And I pulled the front seat forward and dragged the suitcase out. I placed it on the ground and opened the lid. The guards lifted the shirts that lay on top. Beneath them, and now in plain sight, was a pile of tracks in two different Yugoslavian languages, Croatian and Slovene. How is God going to handle this situation? It seems dry for this time of the year, I said to the other guard. And without looking at the fellow who was inspecting the suitcase, I fell into conversation about the weather and I told him about my own homeland and how it was always wet on the polders. Finally, when I could stand the suspense no longer, I looked behind me. The first guard wasn't even glancing at the suitcase. He was listening to our conversation. When I turned round, he caught himself and looked up. Well then, do you have anything else to declare? And I said, well, only a couple of small things. The tracks were small after all. We won't bother with them, said the guard, and he nodded to me that I could close the suitcase, and with a little salute, he handed me back my passport. Um, if you haven't read it, read it. It's an awesome book. Um, the stories around this moment that he smuggles his Bibles in speak of governments that arrest and indefinitely imprison believers. No right of appeal, no uh, uh, representation in the law courts, just an uh, executive order to take you away, your family not knowing where you were. This is what he was risking. The stakes could barely have been higher and you hear some pretty uh, harsh stories later on about some of the pastors and what they went through. But this moment in time, as he tries to encourage the Christians in Yugoslavia, Brother Andrews decides to cast his anxieties on God through this prayer, because he knew his Saviour cared for him and cared for those that he was reaching. And wonderfully, seeing eyes are made blind. And this guy uh, gets to encourage these persecuted Christians in Yugoslavia. And uh, I love the story of these Christians who have got such an appetite for the Bible that they often don't have full ones and they have portions that they kind of divide and separate around the group. 
Friends, anxiety in this time is inevitable for those that neglect their Heavenly Father. If you don't draw near to him who loves you, then anxiety is inevitable. Is what's going to happen? If you are the centre of this world, then everything does depend on you. All the decisions you make are the most important ones and you will live or die by them. But if your Heavenly Father holds you in his hand, then everything is different. If your Heavenly Father holds you and loves you and guides you, then perhaps you don't need to be so uptight, so depressed, so angry, so uh, sleepless. Our God is our supreme coping mechanism. Bear Grylls, the, uh, uh, the adventurer, talks about going, you know what, God is my crutch because I need one. I can't make it through this life without him. We give him every stress and worry in prayer. We go, I can't handle it, God. I can't handle it. And I'm not going to bother trying because it's not going to do me any good anyway. And we give up this illusion we're in control. And we let God come in through us. And I want to make you aware, as this sounds beautiful, and everyone goes, yeah, I'm going to pray more and worry less. That sounds amazing. I want you to be aware, as we do this, God has this a tendency to increase your stress. As you cast your anxiety in, he goes, really good, well done. Let me see how much stress you can handle. And the idea is not to avoid stress in life. The idea is to cast your anxieties on him in increasing measure so that you become better at it. So I'm, I'm afraid there is no promise of a stress-free life as a Christian. You just get better at dealing with it, better at casting it on God, better at praying at these moments where you feel your own world is imploding. There is a, uh, uh, a Muslim I know um, that I love to talk to about matters of faith. Um, people are often quite sort of closed, and they know what I think, and they know what they think about me, and never the twain should be discussed. Um, however, this person uh, uh, seems to enjoy talking about faith, and uh, um, this person also has this tendency to make wide, uh, sweeping station, uh, statements that really get to my back up. You know, they, they seem to suggest they are no knowledgeable about everything, from anthropology to space travel to this, that, and the other. And uh, um, there's just something about that confidence and swagger that I find really, uh, I struggle with. And so recently, uh, we were talking about faith, and we were talking about sort of the, the more prehistoric societies and, 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 and how they lived with it. Um, and uh, um, we were talking, and then this person sort of uh, started talking about, uh, um, in, in Sussex, uh, uh, the sort of prehistoric uh, tribes um, would have been competing for food with lions. And then they started going on about lions, and I was like, look, I've had enough of this, you know. You need to be cut down a peg or two. And I was like, there was no lions in Sussex. What are you talking about? I might give you a bear, but there's no flipping lions uh, going on about. A quick Google uh, revealed to my embarrassment that there were indeed large cave lions in Sussex that ran quite happily around the Downs. Um, and I made a mental note to remember Pete's early advice, to be a little bit humbler 
uh, in my attempts at evangelism and not try and steamroller people into the kingdom of heaven. Um, and so it seems that cave lions died out uh, a few thousand years ago. And one and the prevailing idea is that we hunted them into extinction. You know, I'd quite like lions. You know, they're, they're majestic beasts of all their wars and stuff like that. Large predators may be great on safari, and I'm just well on board with that, but you don't want to compete with a large cave lion for food. You don't want to be roaming Buckham Park for a rabbit or two and then come across a cave lion. And we need to sort of uh, move into this place of an unromantic idea of lions, because they are wild, they are ravenous, and they are feral beasts. And the apostle says, that lion, that feral, wild, ravenous beast, that's like your enemy. Not people. People are your enemies. The devil. The devil and his assorted minions. They are cunning, they are merciless, and they are rogue. There's nothing off limits. There are no rules where he is concerned. You go, oh yeah, I know they're a bit sensitive about that. I won't, I, won't, I won't touch that element of their life. That doesn't apply to the devil. He will look for the weakness. He will look for the vulnerability. And he will go in hard. He doesn't want to just wound or maim. He doesn't want to just uh, draw a bit of blood. He wants to take out everyone and everything is fair game and Peter says you need to understand that as a Christian that this is your enemy. Humans, people, Sussex tribes hunted cave lions into extinction because they were terrible adversaries and there is no place for them and the Christian needs to see the devil in that same wild horrific uh, opponent that there is no room for. And Peter tells us how to survive a confrontation with a lion. What are we to do? We're to stand firm in the faith. And that's his quip. That's his easy answer. You're like, well, that's easy for you to say, Peter. What on earth do you mean by that? He says, don't worry about strategy. You know those books that say there's seven key methods to resist the devil or 90 techniques for a prosperous, happy Christian life. When the devil comes, you do what you've done before. When pressure comes, you trust in God. Have a look at our last scripture reference, Revelation 12. It says this. Great bit of passage. Um, so this is apocalyptic language, so all about dragons and fire and that sort of thing. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. And some of you are like, are we reading Tolkien here? What's this got to do with Jesus? And he goes on. But he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. And the, drake, and the great dragon was hurled down. And then if you don't know what the dragon is, he goes, that ancient snake called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. That's who the dragon is here. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. These corrupted angels that we know as demons. 
Then I heard a voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of the Messiah for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They have triumphed over him. How? How have Christians, the saints, the people of God triumphed over the snake, the accuser, the devil? They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. In this cosmic supernatural battle, the devil is portrayed as the enemy of God and all who are called by his name. And we find the saints, these Christian believers, they can overcome this fearsome serpent, this deadly dragon, which are quite intimidating images. Dragons and snakes, they're not cuddly animals. By what Jesus did, and testimony, that's how we overcome. So Jesus has already won the victory and we profess that faith. And uh, this book in Revelation, this John on the Isle of Patmos, he says that's how you overcome the devil. Jesus has already done it. You say you're with him, fish, splash, posh. The devil's time is short. And he continues to come against those who love the Nazarene. He doesn't like the fact that you love Jesus. He doesn't like the fact that you're trying to get better. He doesn't like the fact that you listen to the Holy Spirit. He doesn't like the fact that your name is written in the book of life. And so he is after you like a ravenous, wild cave lion. When doubt and trouble and grief assault us, we don't try a new technique. We don't uh, um, sort of throw ourselves into a new approach. We remind ourselves that our hope is in Jesus. That is the thing that will secure our eternity. Nothing else. No act. No feeding lots of homeless people on a Wednesday in Ealing Church Crawley. No helping love your neighbour. No other good act will see you through. Only the blood of Jesus and your testimony to that effect. You'll never win by being disciplined. You'll never win by being holy. You'll never win by cunning or intelligence or stubbornness. You win because of what Jesus did. In this tempestuous weather of life, and we seem to have gone through it in the last 12 months a bit more, when we don't last remember, when we don't remember when the last calm day was, you know, when the sky uh, even had a moment's Stillness the size of a man's hand. When we don't remember the last time that the sea wasn't a bowly, boiling cauldron. We remember Jesus. We remember the guarantee his sacrifice gives us. We remember the certainty of eternal life. And so I'm going to end with this uh, kid's song that my kids are resisting to learn. It says, you better build your house upon a rock. Make a good foundation on a solid spot. And then the storms may come and go, the peace of God you will know. Please bow your heads.
Jesus, we thank you that you died for us. That that is the pivotal point in history. We live 2,021 years after that. And oh God, your death is still as reliable today as it ever was. Lord God, I pray that you would help us remember that that is the reason for our hope, the reason for our peace, the reason for our joy. Lord God, I pray that we would be good at casting our anxiety onto you, for you love us. You've demonstrated it very clearly through Jesus, so we've got no reasons to doubt you. And uh, Lord God, we just pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.